It is Tuesday, February 16th. I'm Guy Adami, as always, joined by my dear friend Dan Nathan for this week's Macro Setup, brought to you by our presenting sponsor, IGUS, one of the fastest-growing foreign exchange dealers in North America. We're going to be joined by a very special guest later. I won't tell you who, but you might be able to figure it out. He's done such a great job with us. Dan, how are you today? Doing fantastic, Guy. You know, holiday shortened week are the best weeks that we have in the markets. Would you agree with that? I would so agree with that. Having a Monday off is so much better than having a Friday off. I don't know why that is. It's just sort of a mind thing. But here we are on Tuesday. The market's off to another rip-roaring start. S&P 500 traded up to 39.50. Uh, the NASDAQ continues to grind higher. The Russell made an all-time high late last week. Things seem to be on autopilot right now. However, Dan, the warning signs are there. Well, you know, it's funny. You know who did not have the day off yesterday was that those, those crypto traders. They were trying to push that Bitcoin to the, the 50,000 thing. It was like a, it was like a mission over this long holiday weekend to happen. They wanted to meme it into existence, as the kids say. Well, they did. They were successful because we did see Bitcoin north of 50,000. And who knows, by yeah. the time this airs later today, I mean, the thing might be north of 60,000 the way it's trading. <laughs> I have no idea. And we're going to have Brian Kelly on, I'm sure, at a certain point, yeah. just to sort of talk about all these things in the weeks to come. But with that said, Dan, here we are again. I, I don't want to be glib. Market at yeah. all-time highs. You know, Bank of America, I think it was Bank of America, put a note out saying the bear case is effectively that there is no bear case, which if you think about it, to me, that's just analysts throwing up their hands. And that typically happens when you see the bottom on down moves and the top on moves higher. Yeah, interesting, you know, three-day weekend, we have a one-year, or we actually have a two-year chart of the VIX, and we've been talking about, you know, the VIX holding this line. Here we are, it's, a, it's one week, uh, one year to the week when, when the S&P topped out um, in February 2020, and at the time, Guy, if you recall, we were on a crazy win streak of new highs for the S&P 500 for most of the major um, equity indices. I mean, people really couldn't see at that time before the VIX broke out. I mean, we were thinking about, OK, how low can the VIX go? Could it break 10 You know, to the downside? Quickly got above 20 and it's never really mm -hmm. broken 20 um, you know, for the last year, if we think about it. So we had this um, long weekend. The VIX has been up a little bit. We've seen a reversal. You know, we're recording this, um, you know, uh, I don't know, 1130 Eastern time here. We've seen the Russell 2000 reverse. And I think it's important to remember here, we're about six weeks into the year. We have S&P 500 up 5%, the NASDAQ up 10%, the Russell up 16%. And to your point, major broker ha uh, brokerage houses are saying, we don't see what the, the bear case is. Let's just flip to this next chart really quickly. There's been a lot of talk um, about option call volume in particular. Oh, look at what you did there, call of the wild. Did you come up with that? Or was that, was, that's, is that called a GIF or a Mimi? That, that's probably all wrapped up in a one. That's from Bloomberg. Right, and they're, they're showing that parabolic move. And really what that's telling us is that we are just seeing the sort of upside speculation that we have never seen before. What does it mean to you? Never, you see, no, it's interesting. <laughs> We've never seen before. That's exactly right. Even in the, Think about it. Even in the halcyon days of the late 90s, 2000, you didn't see this. Now, now a lot of people will say correctly that, listen, guy, options weren't in vogue then. Options yeah. derivatives have become much bigger part of portfolios, trades, um, strategies, what have you. And that's true. There's absolute truth to that. So I'm not going to discount that. But with that said, the fact that the market's seemingly impervious to the downside vis-a-vis -vis this, this chart 
or graphic you're putting up is scary. And I mean, that, Dan, comes on the heels of all kinds of other metrics that are flashing red. But again, the broader market doesn't seem to care. And the more that we point these out, the more the market seems to want to go higher. I'll say one more time that the higher this thing goes, seemingly impervious to the bad news, uh, the worse it's going to be when things do turn. And I got to tell you something. The warning signs, which have been there for weeks, have just continued to mount, Dan, Nathan. Yeah, so let's look at that SPX chart, the S&P 500. We have a two-year chart here. I drew a line from the February highs of 2020, and then we really attach it to the September 2nd high, which was the breakout level in November. And you see on the downside of that is the 200-day moving average. It's just um, near 3,400. And then that September 2nd high, the November breakout, is right near... Um, 3,600. So you have that range to the downside, which should serve as massive technical um, support. But you see what's going on here. We are just on a runaway uh, breakout here. We had that little kind of mini correction um, of about four and a half percent from the highs in January. And it's just kind of all systems go. Put that together with a VIX really steady above 20. And then that call option uh, activity. And then just what we're going to get to on the crypto side, we are just seeing a level of speculation and euphoria about risk assets that we have not seen in a very long time. And so to me, if you're looking for a pullback, it's that kind of January low would be the first one, then 3,600, the breakout level from November. And then there's an air pocket down to that 200-day moving average in the S&P 500. Which makes a lot of sense if you think about it. You brought it up. That 3,400-ish level was a prior all-time high. We saw obviously more than a year or so ago. And that makes sense for a, a myriad of different reasons. Yeah. If you were to just look at this, you know, I can see the uptrend line from the March low, again, in the sep sort of September um, low, and then where we are now. And you can see that uptrend line is steep and it's very well defined, but we've seen it before. Things seemingly come out of nowhere. And the, and the farther away we get from this 200 day moving average, the more you say to yourself, you're going to have a reversion to the mean. We've seen it over and over again in the course of history. And the fact that we've gone this long without taking a look at it, it should really be alarming to people. Now, again, people say it's different this time. And the bear case is there's no bear case. I get it. It's never different this time, Dan Nathan. That's a fact. The two pillars of the bull case are very simple, is that the vaccine rollout is going better than expected. We're seeing caseloads. Right. Um, collapsing. Okay. And so you put that together with added uh, fiscal stimulus and you see an economy that is globally about ready to explode. And then if the U.S. in particular is doing better than we had originally thought, then, you know, you're going to just reprice risk assets. That's really what's going on. We'll talk about that when we get to rates. Right. Let's and you know what? No, no. But I, I want to sort of dovetail what you just said. You yeah. just said that's the bull case for the market. I would say that's the bull case for the economy. Yeah. And I would say the bull case for the economy actually is the bear case for the market. And I teased him earlier. I'll bring it up now. We're, later, we're going to have Chris Vecchio, senior strategist from Daily FX, to talk about exactly that because yeah. I think he shares some of my views. So don't confuse the bull case with the economy with the bull case. And I'm not suggesting you're doing this. I think you, can, you might see that coin flipping in a major way. So what's good for the economy might not be so great for the market. Anyway, Dan, I digress. Let's continue, please.
You do. Let's just look at the NASDAQ 100, the two-year chart. We know the top six names, Microsoft, Apple, Google, Amazon, Facebook, and Tesla make up nearly 50% of the weight of the NASDAQ 100, 100 stocks of the NASDAQ 100. Six of them make up 50% of the weight. What's really interesting to me is if you take Tesla out of there and you take out the recent app performance of Alphabet, which is Google, you have three companies, Microsoft and Apple, um, and Amazon, which has made close to $5 trillion in market cap that have really gone sideways of late. So you're mm-hmm. seeing these new highs every day in the NASDAQ 100 without the participation of three of the biggest names. I think that's interesting. We draw the lines there. If you kind of just look at that level um, at about 12,500, which is kind of the breakout level from November, you look at the 200-day moving average at 11,400. We are obviously extremely extended, but if you don't have the participation of those major names, if they were ever join the party, this thing could have higher highs. To me, I think a better entry level is back towards that November breakout with obviously huge support down near that 200-day moving average. Right. And you see the trend line that Dan drew. Actually, you could extend that trend line and it probably will touch that March low as well. So you have a very steep uptrend in a very actually almost a year's period of time. You know, the longer this goes, uh, the better it looks, but obviously the more precipitous the drop. And I do think a retest to that prior high that Dan has drawn that horizontal line makes makes a lot of sense. And oh, by the way, since you mentioned it, Amazon, which had a huge bounce right into right after their earnings release, if you recall, for about a 24-hour period, very quietly is now below $3,300, something just to watch going forward to Dan's point about the lack of participation in his F-Mega complex that he coined probably two and a half or so years ago, Dan. Please continue. That is a fact. Let's get to the Russell 2000. At one point um, last year, when the Russell still lagged, um, the major indices went, that were obviously working their way back to their prior high, the Apple market cap was greater than the entire Russell 2000. That's a small cap index. Look at that chart. It really had made an all-time high back in 2018. When it failed in 2019, it was below the 18 high. And when you look at the breakout level that we've seen, it has literally, this is the definition of parabolic in markets here. Yeah. Um, the market, you know, investors are speaking here. They think that they um, small cap stocks are going to do best from this low rate, easy money environment uh, with the vaccines happening, reopening of the global economy and maybe some policies that are favorable to a bunch of the companies that are in there. Um, obviously, it has uh, you know heavy financials in there. So the steepening yield curve, which we're going to talk about, is benefiting that. But just look at that breakout guy. What do you do here? To me, I am short of this thing. I'm looking for a pullback, but the pullback might be violent and it might be quick. Um, I'm not sure how deep it is. Yeah, I think you're waiting for a big volume day where you'd see it make potentially make an, a new all-time high and then reverse. Actually, as we as we sit here taping this now, we're starting to see it a bit today. Um, so maybe it's you know maybe you're starting to seeing that rounded top. And to your point about move to the downside being precipitous, you're 100 percent right. But I will mention we've talked about this before. Not that it's all that interesting, although I do think it is. What you're looking at now is basically an overlay of the 10-year yields market. And why do I say that? Because obviously the small caps are the most sensitive to an, a, an improving economy, and I think people somehow yeah. believe that that 10-year yield, which is now, by the way north of 1.25%. We're going to get to that in a minute with Chris Vecchio. I think that's suggestive of an economy that's going to improve. Maybe, maybe not. I think it's, I think it's suggestive of the fact that inflation is here in spades and nobody wants to talk about it. But 
This Russell, again, you're talking about something now that's 38%, I think we talked about before we came on, above the 200-day moving average. That's unprecedented. That's like standard deviation stuff away that we historically don't see. And you can just look at where we've been in terms of the 200-day moving average over the last two and a half years, uh, and now how, how far we've deviated from it. Something's got to give here, Dan. And my, my suspicions are it's going to be the Russell in, in a meaningful way. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, you just mentioned the word inflation. Let's talk about Bitcoin. It seems like the only thing that people want to talk about as it relates to markets, which might be giving some color to equity investors just bidding up stocks every morning here because the fascination with Bitcoin. Um, listen, there's a lot of narratives out there. We're going to talk about some of them, but let's just look at this one-year chart real quickly here. When it broke above 20,000 in December, we saw it double in the next month or so. Then we saw yeah. um, a pullback from just above 40,000 to 30,000 um, just a few weeks ago. And now here we are across 50,000 for the first time ever. Um, 50,000, not it, it really important other than the fact that the kids on the, on the interweb like to meme it a little bit. But here we are. We're making a little fat flag in these high 40s. I just want to go to the five-year chart just to kind of show how significant um, that doubling in December was. And then this move from 30,000 to 50,000, the all-time high, the last time we saw a major frenzy in Bitcoin was in December or in the fall of 2017. And we saw a similar price action. We obviously saw it go from 20,000 in December 2017 to its recent lows, I think near 3,000 at the end of 2018. And, and just right. there's a lot... There's a lot of narratives out there, you know, and, and, and just talk to me about this one, guy. This was yesterday um, on the Twitter. Tyler Winklevoss, you know, huge proponent of Bitcoin. They have Gemini trading platform. They're all in on this. He and his, his brother, they own a lot of it. Um, but, you know, these are things that kind of trouble me a little way. They feel like they want to meme this stuff into existence. And they're kind of these financial influencers, or you might call them influencers um, here. And I just, you know, I look at this tweet and I'm like, I don't really agree with it. And I'll show you why I don't agree with it on the charts. But what does this sort of price action and this sort of sentiment and this sort of meaning uh, mean to you in a risk asset like this? I think, he's, I think this is just being glib. It's just taking advantage of the fact that this, obviously, to your point, Bitcoin is now either side of 50,000. I think people are trying to get clever. A U.S. dollar is a risk on asset. Well, obviously, that's not the case. But what I think he's trying to say is the U.S. dollar is a risky asset and Bitcoin is a not risky asset. He's trying to do it in a very clever way. By the way, in, in a certain regard, I happen to agree with him. I, you know, I think what he's saying is, guess what, folks? The U.S. dollar is a has-been and Bitcoin is going to take over in some way, shape or form. And by the way, this move in Bitcoin is an mm -hmm. absolute indictment of the U.S. dollar. I, I would agree with him on that. But you know, being glib in this type of environment is, is somewhat dangerous. And I think that's what he's doing. So, uh, okay, that's just but, but my here's point. The thing. Have, you have charts. All right. But let me, let me say, so, so here's the point. It, okay, the, the U.S. dollar is the reserve currency of the world and it's used to transact. Right. And it's really gold. That is that thing that that inflation hedge, which is really meant to kind of be there for if, if we are indicting the dollar. I just want to go back to the last two equity um, sell-offs that we've had, you know, back in Q4 of 2018, when we think of risk off, we think of stocks going lower. We see a flight to quality in the bond market and that sort of thing. And that used to mean also the dollar. So look at Q4 2018, the S&P 500.
500 at that time dropped 20%. Bitcoin got cut in half. Let's go to the next chart. This is mm-hmm. Bitcoin 2020. Mm-hmm. The last time we were in a risk-off market, okay, when we saw risk-off assets going lower, and Bitcoin went, again, got cut in half. The S&P was only down 35% peak to trough. Now, obviously, it's much, much higher here. We have a three-year chart showing those sell-offs there, and they were violent risk-off sell-offs. I just want to make the point. In both instances, Bitcoin got cut in half. You think there's more risk with Bitcoin at 50,000 than when it was at 6,000 in the end of 2018 or 10,000 in the beginning of 2020 in a risk-off environment? We will see. Okay, no one has the crystal ball. No one has the answers. But my point is, if you're memeing people into this, into this belief that is actually going to be a currency, not a commodity, then there's lots of risk there. And I think they end up being very correlated. But we will only uh, time will only tell. And I want to take you. But I'm going to hand it off to you with the Dixie here, because during that three-year period that we're talking about all this price activity, there's the U.S. dollar index. So what does it say to you relative to the Winklevoss tweet and what we just talked about? Well, I mean, it's obviously it's, it's completely inverse to what he just said. But again, I'll make the point that I think he was trying to be clever. And, you know, he's trying to point out that the dollar, if you're in the dollar right now, it's a risky asset. And Listen, you just you just outlined it really well. I mean, the dollar you've seen the dollar rise in periods where Bitcoin is going lower. So it's somewhat. I, listen, my point is this: I think he's trying to be clever. I think he's doing it at expense of people that might not understand exactly what he's trying to do, and I think it's problematic. And oh, by the way, um, Bitcoin. Think about it. You mentioned it. It went from twenty thousand to three thousand in two, December of two thousand seventeen over the ensuing six to nine months. I mean, that is a significant move. So to think that Bitcoin can't just get cut in half here from 45, 50,000 to 25,000, to think it's, it's impossible for it to happen. Oh, by the way, it's happened and it's happened in a more um, precipitous way, to use that word once again. And I think I, I have no idea where Bitcoin is going. But what I will tell you is when you line that up with everything we've talked about for the last 20 minutes or so, it sends a bit of a message here that, hey, maybe it's not a bad time to be looking at things. Um, reverting to the mean. And in terms of Bitcoin, it's not it's not crazy to think it can't go from 50 back to 25 and still be in a significant bull market, by the way. Yeah, no, I mean, I think that's the case that a lot of these guys make. And that's the case they will make when it corrects 50 percent, because it's likely to probably do that again. Let's go to the gold chart here, because gold is the thing. This is probably the best case to be made just of a digital store of value here, right? There's scarcity um, as far as Bitcoin's concerned. There's only 2 million left to be mined. They've been have, you know, having the supply. You know, to me, what's interesting here is that you know, gold, obviously, it was also a religion. It's been a religion for hundreds of years in the investment community. And gold obviously did pick up over the last year and a half. It's not kept up with Bitcoin over the last six to nine months or so. Um, and, and one of the bull cases is very simple, that there's $12 trillion of gold out there that's basically being used um, as this commodity store of value. And that if Bitcoin were to take you know, meaningful market share, it's going to 100, 200, 300, 400, 500,000. And I get that. But here's my only problem right now, is that people are talking about it as a currency. I don't think anybody wants to use it as a currency because if you were to just transact in it right now, it is slow. There is cost associated with it. And if you think that there's a finite availability of it, 
Why would you ever spend it, right? That, that's kind of the point. And I want to go to you real quickly here. We're seeing corporates. We talked about it last week. Tesla has put it on its balance sheet. MicroStrategy is doing another secondary. If all of these corporates or a handful of them and some of these influencers are getting in and they're trying to corner the market in Bitcoin, then it is the ultimate Ponzi scheme and there's no top to where it could go. And I don't think that makes a great case for replacing gold um, as a store of value. Yeah. And we do this wonderful, what, what do they call them, Dan? Podcast with the great Danny Moses we call On the Tape. And we actually had a guest on a couple of weeks ago yeah. uh, that talked about Bitcoin being one of the biggest self-fulfilling Ponzi schemes in history. I, I'm not suggesting he is right or, or not right, but I mean, there is that school of thought out there. And I think the existential risk to Bitcoin is something you've talked about as well, is some governing agency coming in and, and, and sort of kiboshing this thing in some way. I don't know how that happens. I don't know how it happens in terms of companies and, and Bitcoin on their balance sheet. I have no idea. But if you start seeing even a sniff of those types of headlines, maybe it's time to take some money off the table. And oh, by the way, quickly, I'm a huge REM fan. You probably are yes. as well, although you'd listen to them after their heyday. I was sort of in the midst of it. And I'm not a big fan of losing my religion, the song. I think it's a lousy song, but I am not going to lose my religion in terms of the gold market. I'm, I'm quite frankly, I'm perplexed the fact that it hasn't gotten off the mat here. And maybe it's it's a function of what you just talked about, this 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 move towards Bitcoin. But I think the two are mutually exclusive. And I think at a certain point, the market's going to figure that out, Dan. Yeah, the point about regulation is I got lambasted on um, online uh, in the it's last a great week. word, by the way, lambasted. Yeah, for, for talking about how, you know, governments are probably, and specifically our government is not going to let the dollar, you know, other than what China is trying to do to replace the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency of the world, they're not going to sit down and just let that happen. And, you know, Bitcoin, because it is a decentralized, immutable ledger, it can't be regulated, okay? That's the whole point of it. I get that. I've read the white paper, and you know what I mean? I'm not a hater on Bitcoin. I own some, okay? But my point is very simple, is that if the government or governments want to regulate how their citizens use Bitcoin, that's how they can do it. Who knows what, what can happen there? And I'll just tell you, I think this is a real problem. Let's move to this Dogecoin really quickly here. And this is a, a snapshot from... Um, Coinbase, and it's really important to remember here. Let's look at it, about Dogecoin. Dogecoin is a currency that was created as a joke. Keyword there, joke, okay? There was no joke. reason for it other than memes on the internet. And then, of course, the biggest meme of all, you know, Elon Musk, he doesn't think it's a joke, or maybe he does, but he's been pushing this thing for the last few weeks. Um, look at his Twitter feed. In between his serious talk about going to Mars and about changing the electric grid and all these things that he wants to do with flamethrowers, he's also all in on a joke of a cryptocurrency, the meme. And then let me just go to this other one that he did. You know, he basically is doing polls right here to say the future currency of Earth. Okay, now he knows this is a joke, but theoretically, this makes some sense. To him. Why couldn't a bunch of people like him, he is the richest man in the world right now, why couldn't they all get behind some virtual or digital currency, right, and make that the thing? I would say that that is an existential threat to Bitcoin, even though he owns it, and maybe that's just a hedge, that if a bunch of people want to do that sort of stuff. So to me, I'm done with that. I don't hate on the cryptos or anything like that. I think it's a bit of a religion here. I think we're in a euphoric period, and a lot of these people believe a lot of things that are yet to be proven, um, and so we're going to see. Well, the fact, just quickly, because I want to get to Chris Vecchio, but think yeah. about it. The fact that two and a half million people voted in this thing 
in a 24-hour period. We can only vote once. I mean, I understand a lot of people probably think it's a, they're in on the joke as yeah. well, but that's terrifying to me that the fact that this is the man that you just mentioned, the wealthiest man in the world, the CEO of one of the six or seven largest companies in the world, is so glib with his Twitter account. Yeah. That is problematic. Uh, and I find it to be, well, I'll use the word offensive, but I go back and I'll say it again. You want proof positive as to why he thinks he's got air cover and seemingly impervious? Go back to the Joe Kernan interview last February from Davos when he interviewed President Trump and just go back and listen to the five minutes or so they talked about uh, the great minds of the world, the guy that invented the wheel and Elon Musk. And if you tell me there's not something going on there. Anyway, Dan, is it time to bring in Chris Vecchio? Please oh. tell me it is because he's been waiting patiently patiently yes I, it is can i bring him in of well, course so with, without further ado uh chris vecchio the uh senior strategist of daily fx been with us i think chris if i'm not mistaken this is your third go round on the macro setup is that correct sir yes indeed guy dan nice to see you both as well this has been uh, quite the interesting conversation <laughs> I, I don't know why uh someone who's tweeting so erratically about you know an asset isn't looked at a pump and dump scheme but you know that's apparently beyond me no, it's beyond clear. It's about beyond us as well. And I do think it's problematic. And I've been following you on Twitter. You've said some really interesting things about what's going on in Texas and, and the fact that maybe infrastructure is closer than we think. And a lot of that is manifesting itself, I think. And I think you agree as well in this 10 year yield. And we have the chart. I mean, you look at 10 year yields today, north of one and a quarter percent, when in August we were talking about 53 basis points. You know, Dan makes fun of me and says, oh, come on, it's not a big deal. I would suggest that a move of that magnitude in that short period of time, and I happen to think that eight months is a short period of time, is somewhat problematic. Where do you stand here in rates? When, did, when do you think, at what point does a 10-year yield become a problem for the market, not a tailwind for the market? Sure. I mean, that's a really important question right now because with the rise in the 10-year, it's actually started to outpace the rise in inflation expectations. Uh, producing a rise in real yields. And we'll talk about that and the impact on the dollar in a second. But the, the U.S. 10-year real yield has gone up from about 1.07% negative to about 0.95% negative. That's a, it's a sizable 8%, uh, 8 basis point bump in the last few days. Um, you know, when I think about what's going on with rates here, we're beginning to get into uh, you know, the danger zone, to go back to the uh, the Tom Cruise references. Um, we're we're looking at what I think is you know the tipping point between in, investors deciding between should I invest in bonds or should I invest in equities. We have that you know the Fed ratio or looking at even the S and P five hundred dividend yield that's currently sitting around one point four nine percent. And so when we start to climb into the S and P five hundred dividend yield or in the earnings yield, which is about two point four six percent right now, we begin to get into that asset allocation territory where. Why take the additional risk of investing in equities when I can get the same returns for less risk in bonds? Uh, and that's where this becomes an issue. Now, if you really are concerned about inflation, of course, over the long haul, equities offer a better hedge against inflation than bonds. Fixed income is fixed after all. Um, this could in turn, though, produce somewhat of a problem for the FX space. You know, For the dollar in particular, it's been dancing along a, a key trend line. And I think that could have an impact on the euro or the pound. Um, but we do have this infrastructure deal that's potentially going to come later this year on top of a $1.9 trillion U.S. stimulus plan that the Democrats seem to be willing to push through with reconciliation. These things seem inflationary. And when you look at what's going on in soft ag or even in some of the base metals, there seem to be inflation expectations being baked into the market. 
So, so Chris, um, you know, Guy said that I make fun of him for talking about, you know, the 50 basis point low in August to where we are right now at one and a quarter in the 10 year U.S. Treasury. And, and I don't make fun of him. But what I'm saying is it's been very orderly. And throughout that time, we've seen equities been able to rise. Right. We've also seen other risk assets do just fine. So my point is, is that it's been an orderly rise, although on a percentage basis, it's been very huge. I don't see it as violent. But let's go to this next um, chart of the 10 year U.S. Treasury. And to me, this is the one where all the stuff that you just mentioned might be the one that starts to catch, you know, macro traders um, you know, antennas get, getting them up. Because if we look at that one four to one five range, that was meant to be, uh, I remember at the t- time people talking about it in 2012, and then again, 16 when it held it as a generational low. Then it held again in 2019. And then it obviously rates were on their way down in 2019 because the Fed kind of shifted gears a little bit on the, on the raising, but it took a pandemic just to make them basically go back to zero and Fed funds. And we got to 50 basis points. What does this chart mean to you? And then extrapolate it to some of those other themes that you were just talking about, if we are able to get above that 1.5 range. Well, if we get above that 1.5 range, I think that becomes the catalyst for somewhat of a pullback in the equities that we were discussing earlier. Yeah. Uh, I, I know that you have your FMAGA complex, which you know theoretically seems like a, a, a group that would benefit from extended lockdowns, right? More of a digital stay-at-home economy. And so that could be a, a reason why we now see uh, those stocks coming in. But you know, if we're continuing with the 2009 to 2011 analogy here, there was a period in 2009 uh, into 2010 when stocks pulled back a little bit and they consolidated. And with earnings or PE ratios so extended right now, a period of a few months where stock prices come in a little bit, earnings continue to improve, uh, and we see yields go up, that wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing given the excess that we're seeing as you mentioned, in something like Dogecoin, which is a complete joke, literally set up as a joke, and yet it's attracting all this attention because a bored billionaire has nothing better to do with his time than, you know, jerk around a bunch of people on the internet. Mm-hmm. And the highway to the danger zone, by the way, to your point, is, I think, the one and a half percent, just to tie a little bow on that, Tom. By the way, I got to tell you something. I'm excited for a lot of things. That Maverick movie, I, I can't tell you how excited I am. Anyway, once again, I digress. We have the two 10-year spread which I think is interesting. It's something we have to talk about because, you know, the move in this, you know, Dan talked about the orderly move into 10 year. Okay. I'll buy that. But this has been, say what you want. I mean, this has been a huge move in two tens, which were almost flat. If you think about it uh, in one point in 2019, and here we are at levels we haven't seen in almost five years, Chris. You know, I think this is one of the reasons why people have those expectations of inflation starting to rise. You know, 210 is a really good proxy for U.S. growth, for U.S. Uh, not just inflation expectations, but also recession expectations. This and the three-month, uh, 10-year spread are the two best, according to Campbell Harvey, the Duke finance professor, who actually uh, wrote the dissertation on yield curve as a recession indicator. So when you look at where we stand now, obviously this speaks to an improving economy, uh, and then with the narratives that we've talked about, the vaccinations, uh, with the fiscal stimulus, yep. this kind of all makes sense. But inflation is the one thing that you know we keep missing this boat on here. Soft ag prices are going up. Hard metal prices are going up. I think the Fed has this attitude that, yeah, we're going to see a bump in inflation now because of a base effect. We had such a big drawdown last March, April because of the pandemic. Now, of course, we're going to see something higher than 2%. And look what happened with the BOJ and the ECB. Did they really ever get the 2% inflation that they ever wanted? That leaves the economy at risk to see 
overheating a bit, where we can see two, three, perhaps more inflation than that. It's not like a developed economies haven't gone through this. The UK actually, in the, the wake of the global financial crisis, was contending with three and a half, four percent inflation for a few years there. It wouldn't be unseen if that happened here in the United States. But for now, the Fed is more or less giving permission for these trends to continue. Uh, even this morning, Bullard was out saying that this seems like a rational market. And uh, we've had other commentators like Al Arian out saying that this is a rational bubble. So, you know, as we say, the, the market can stay insolvent or rather irrational longer than you can stay mm -hmm. solvent. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Truth. Yeah, that is the truth. I love it how Chris, you know, drops like professor. He's quoting professors from Duke, and you and I are quoting like Twitter handles, guy. I mean, just to, just to I'm show quoting you. Michael Stipe is what <laughs> I'm quoting. But yeah, go ahead. No, it's Sorry. amazing. Well, so just to finish off with this two ten spread, let's go to this XLF chart, a ten year chart. Obviously, it took U.S. bank stocks um, a very very long time to make new highs um, in the wake of the financial crisis here. And here we see that you know from 2017, that was after you know um, Trump's election, deregulation, the hope for um, you know re global reflation, but also you know really easy policy and lower taxes, that sort of thing. Um, 2018, banks crapped out. Then we saw a, a brief new high in 2019 pre-pandemic. And then you saw what happened there. So here we are. That 210 spread is helping banks. We just made today, I think, a new all-time high um, in the XLF. So, Chris, do you want to take us, before you get to commodities and, and, and some of your currency crosses, what's your view on banks in this inflationary environment, and specifically here in the U.S.? I think a steepening yield curve is good for banks in terms of the you know net margin that they're able to charge on uh, the spread between their actual loans that they put out for, say, mortgages and, and the liabilities that they owe for consumers who hold deposits in their banks um, on, on the retail side. Yep. Thinking about that combination, then, a steepening yield curve with more inflation should then be good for banks right now and profitability. Certainly at the beginning part of expansions business cycles, banks tend to be undervalued. And uh, I wish actually we had a longer term chart here because if we go back and look at some of these levels to say 2006, 2007, it looks like we've had a rather large cup and handle forming over the last 20 plus years. Uh, banks to me look like they are in a fairly good position long term, technically speaking. And the economic environment right now, the Fed wants to keep rates low and we have a growing economy. Banks can really cash in uh, on the differential. Chris Vecchio is just dropping all – I mean, he came with his A game today, Dan. Listen, let's go to Euro dollar, U.S. dollar, because now we're going to get right into your ballywick, if I, if I may use that term. Um, I believe that's the chart we're looking at. Talk to us about some of these crosses, Chris. Uh, right. We're with the Euro dollar here right now. This is the monthly chart, which is why I want to draw two points. One, is it possible that we see a correction with more dollar upside? Yes, absolutely in the short term. And – uh, that DXY index chart that we were looking earlier, the dollar index has turned higher above that pandemic trend line from the March and November 2020 highs. But the euro itself could withstand a near-term pullback, right? We could pull back down into that 115 area or so and still be above this long-term descending trend line from the 2008 high, which itself was the all-time high. Again, that speaks to the idea that long-term, yes, maybe we're seeing a correction higher in real yields, but with this combination of low rates coupled with fiscal stimulus and then higher realized inflation, we're going to see a downdraft in real yields once more. And that has been problematic for the dollar over the past year. So uh, it's really two sides of this. Could the dollar gain? Yes, in the near term. But a lot of these currencies, the euro here, the pound next, 
both have long-term footing uh, for uh, more appreciation, in my opinion. And take us through the next chart you brought us, Chris. Yeah, this is the British pound. I mean, how could you not like the pound right now? You're looking at an economy that leaves the world in vaccination rates. About 22% of all the UK is vaccinated now. About 22 and a half per 100 people uh, have received vaccines. For contrast, in the United States, that's number is about 16 per 100. And that's much better than the EU. The EU is around three and a half per 100. Canada is about three. And so the UK is leading the world, the developed world at least, in vaccines outside of, say, Israel. Um, to that point, the UK is now weathering Brexit fairly well. And everything being in juxtaposition, Brexit looks like it's going better for the UK than it is going for the EU. Uh, to this end, we've seen a lot of weakness in the British pound over the last decade plus. And just like the euro, long-term potential bottoming effort here, this to me looks like a bullish falling wedge. It's on a multi-year, multi-decade timeline but that gives us a long-term macro view, right? We're heading north. We can withstand a pullback, even if there's some dollar strength. Let's keep it real. This looks like a bottoming pattern, and the British pound looks like it has some some stress to work out after several years of being under the gun, uh, uncertainty of what Brexit will look like. And I know you brought a couple more charts, just because as we close out this macro setup, there's another fascinating, I mean, those double tops are very well defined. Can you speak to what's going on here? Dollar CAD, you have to like the Canadian dollar here. And quite frankly, if you like the US economy, I think you like the Canadian economy too. Uh, 20% of Canada's economic activity is derived from activities with the US. 70% of their trade goes to uh, the US here. If you like energy markets, if you think that inflation is going up because of higher demand for and, and greater growth prospects globally, you like the Canadian dollar. And so from my perspective, the Canadian economy has weathered the storm its consumers have weathered the storm better than the American consumer. Um, right now, this is a long-term trend line break going back to the 2012 lows. Technically speaking, looks like a double top. And, uh, you know, possible that we do see a break higher here. This trend line is starting to get stressed. But even if that means we do break higher, we are still below this long-term uptrend. And so perhaps mm -hmm. it gives us a better opportunity for which to sell. And I think we, if I'm not mistaken, Chris, we have one more chart I think you brought with us today. Yeah, Aussie dollar, you know, this is speaking to the fact that we could see that correction in risk, right? Dollar CAD could turn higher. Aussie dollar could turn lower here. We're starting to dance along this trend line from off of the pandemic lows. It goes with the idea that real yields are rising, which tends to be good for the U.S. dollar. And we're starting to see that hike in nominal yields anyway, which causes a correction perhaps in equity markets as we approach that, you know, the equalization point between the dividend yield on the S&P 500 and the nominal U.S. tenure. Uh, that could be a catalyst for an Aussie dollar pullback. But even if we do so, we lose this trend line, pull back into the 74 era before taking a look at a potential buy. Long-term chart here, again, bullish falling wedge. Very difficult not to like this long-term. Chris Vecchio, I got to tell you something, man. This is your third time. As they say, you were great the first two, but third time's a charm. And we're absolutely going to have you back. So I want to thank Chris Vecchio, the senior strategist from Daily FX, killing it today on the macro setup i obviously want to thank dan nathan um you know my partner here with the macro setup and obviously to end it i want to thank igus the one of the fastest growing foreign exchange dealers in north america chris thank you dan nathan thank you we'll see you folks next week for the macro setup have a good day thanks